the doctor comes in on that morning and he's describing type 1 diabetes. Okay, this is what you're going to have to do the rest of your life. You're going to need insulin. And I just, excuse me, no, I can't do that because I can't be a pilot. Well, if you don't do this, you will die. So what do you want? You want to be a dead pilot or you want to be a live person? You know, <laughs> easy choice there. Hi, everyone. I'm Kelly Edwards, and you're listening to Let's Go Together. As a pilot who loves logging time in my logbook, I'm excited to talk to my next guest. Bob Halicki is the first commercial airline pilot with type 1 diabetes. Today, he joins me to explain the joys of flying and the challenges of traveling as a diabetic. Bob, I am so happy to have you here for obvious reasons. First of all, pilot to pilot. Wow, how incredible is it to have you on today? A lot of people don't know what it takes to be able to sit in that left seat. It is a lot of work. And so the fact that not only are you a commercial airline pilot, but you're also traversing the world and operating incredibly complex machinery, having type 1 diabetes. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, it's been quite a journey. I became a private pilot back in 1980 when I was in the military as a mechanic getting my degree. And back then you needed a four-year degree, and I think you still do, to be a military pilot. And that's what I was working on at the same time. And I achieved that goal. And I went to the Air Force. I was a pilot in the Air Force for about six years. My 10-year came up and I decided I wanted to go to the airlines. And so I pursued that. And in 93, I got hired with Southwest Airlines as a commercial pilot. I was still in the Air National Guard, and I retired from the Air National Guard in 2001 and continued my airline career at Southwest. I contracted type 1 diabetes nine and a half years ago in the summer of 2011. And at that time, up until just recently, a type 1 diabetic could only carry a class three medical. Now, you well know about the different classes. Mm -hmm. For your viewers, a class three medical allows you to fly an airplane, single engine, 12,000 pounds or lighter, private pilot type stuff, which is usually about one passenger with you. Class two is a little bit higher medical that allows you to be a co-pilot on a larger aircraft. And it also allows you to get paid to fly. And then class one is the highest level of medical for commercial pilots. So when I contracted type one diabetes, I lost my class one medical and then couldn't fly anymore. Hmm. And so we pursued that myself and a bunch of other people with the FAA to try and change that rule. And it finally happened this last December. Wow, that is incredible. I will have to say that though my worst nightmare would be just to not be able to fly again based off of, you know, my health. Every time I go in for my medical, you know, I don't have any health issues so far that I know of, but I know as a pilot preparing for your medical exam, you get anxiety because it can be anything. <laughs> they can find anything and they're like, ah, ah, ah. Yep. nope, now, now you can't, you can no longer fly. And that is something that I know a lot of pilots deal with. So I can't imagine being 
you know, at the ATP level as a commercial airline pilot, going in and saying, sorry, you're no longer able to do what you love and how you make a living. Yeah, that's the greatest spirit of pilot hat. Any one given day when you go into that doctor, you could be done. It's very scary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for those who don't know, type one diabetes is actually very rare. Less than 200,000 people or cases arise each year. And when you think about our population as a whole, that's actually a pretty small number. But can you tell us what type one diabetes is and how that can prohibit a person from flying the symptoms? Okay, diabetes is classified into two types, uh, type one and type two, as you mentioned. Type two, they're saying that what, almost 30% of America someday is going to have type two. Uh, Just think of those numbers. And a lot of people do have it. And mostly it is your pancreas puts out insulin whenever you eat. Right, so you and it's in combination with your stomach, your liver, your pancreas, that if whenever you eat something, whether it's a protein, a carb, a sugar, or whatever, everything turns into some form of a sugar, and then insulin is secreted into your bloodstream, and then you clean it out through your liver, and that's how you go to the bathroom. And so, type two is sometimes your pancreas can keep up with the insulin levels and sometimes it can't. And so medication or diet or working out or something like that can help reduce that problem. Now type one is your pancreas doesn't work at all. Mm. Zero insulin put out. So therefore you have to supplement. Otherwise you will die. So and that's um, what type one is. So think about that as now you're you're flying, and there and there's other forms of getting insulin nowadays. It's a liquid form, a pump, a needle that you inject yourself, and then I'm currently trying a new uh, product. It's a breathable insulin, and to me, in the cockpit, now that we we finally got that the FAA to approve that and say, yeah, okay, you guys can fly, because their fear was if you let's just say don't take insulin or don't take the right amount and you eat your sugar, the sugar now is in your bloodstream and it can't be filtered out because you're not getting insulin. So then mm-hmm. it rises and rises and rises to where your blood is. Let's just say it's like molasses. It's so thick of sugar. Wow. And then your liver can't process it. You could go way too high and pass out. Or if you take too much insulin or you don't eat and now you have no sugar in your bloodstream because we all need some form of it to, you know, to live. If it goes way too low, then you could pass out. Mm-hmm. And that's their fear is if you're flying an airplane and you pass out, well, gravity will come into play and that airplane will not fly anymore. You know what I mean? Right. I definitely know what you mean as a pilot. You know, it's funny when I'm flying, I, you know, I fly a smaller aircraft, typically uh, Cessna's, Piper Cherokee's, Cirrus, you know, two to four seaters. Those are awesome airplanes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I have a lot of fun. I think about 
you know, when I have a passenger, I'm like, listen, if I ever become incapacitated or pass out or anything like that, this is the things that you need to do in the briefing, you know, hopefully that you can um, comprehend what I just told you and, and help put this bird on the ground. And so even at my level, passing out is something that, you know, you have to be cautious of. I cannot imagine at the commercial level with 143 plus passengers on an aircraft, you know, that being a possibility, but you have a co-pilot for that reason, right? Right. And that is what I could never really understand. Think about it. You just talked about that you're a single pilot, or maybe you might have a passenger and then he's at the controls because it's just a two-seat airplane or not. You might be alone. You were allowed to fly as a type one diabetic. But me, in a commercial pilot, every single commercial airline has two people. Yeah. There is never a way that if I pass out, that there's nobody at the controls. So we could never understand, well, why are you allowing someone to fly solo as a type one, but not somebody that has a partner? Yeah, that's, that is something very much to question. And I can see why you've done so. Uh, what made you want to become a pilot? I, I grew up in the, the 60s as a kid in the Chicago area. And, you know, back then, aviation was, it wasn't new, but it was just on the you know, the cuff of the jet age, the NASA was starting, uh, you know, and as a kid, I built model airplanes and, and living by O'Hare Airport, I saw the jets and I was like, that's got to be a fun job. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But the passion was there. I just didn't know anybody who knew an airplane. And so it was funny uh, in high school then, and I graduated in the mid 70s, they had career day at the high school and a military recruiter, Air Force showed up and I I didn't think I needed college. I didn't know where I was going, but I walked up to the recruiter and I said, I want to be a pilot. And he goes, well, there's a long road to get there, but we can do that. And um, he planted out a road for me, a roadmap, which entailed, you need a four-year degree, but the Air Force can pay for 75% of that if you join the Air Force. So he convinced me, great guy, to join the Air Force as a mechanic. And while I was a mechanic in the Air Force, I was finishing my degree. And that's from there, that was the story. I put in for pilot training, got it. And, and then you guys know the rest of the story. Wow. That's that's amazing. I'm also from Chicago. I can see you have your Bears hat on and your Bears blanket in the background. Yeah. Bear down, bear down, go Bears. Uh <laughs> my wife is a Chiefs fan, so. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think I could grow up to become a pilot. It seemed very far and foreign to me. It was just something that I literally was sitting in an airport one day and saw someone taking off in a Cessna uh, at Burbank Airport, which is yeah. a second largest airport in, in LA next to LAX. And I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. Let me Google one man small airplane and general aviation came up. And so when, when you think about becoming a pilot, it doesn't seem like there's a clear path to it because yeah. I thought you had to be a military pilot to become a pilot, period, which is the way that you went. Right. And kind of where the old days were. Yeah. And, and nobody knew that. Where did you find that out unless you knew somebody that was a pilot? The first time in the cockpit of an airplane is exhilarating. But there's something about being in the left seat, the captain's seat, and having full control of a flight that is unmatched. When we come back, I ask Bob Hallecky about what it was like piloting a commercial flight for the first time. 
everyone. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce season five of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. We're back. Before the break, Bob Hallecky and I discussed his road to becoming a pilot. But I wanted to know more about his first experience in control of a commercial flight with way more passengers than he had previously flown with. What was it like flying your first commercial flight? You know, that was, that was I wouldn't say anticlimactic because I was in the Air Force flying jets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was just a normal progression to take off the flight suit and put on a, a white shirt and a tie, you know? So it was, it was fun, put it that way. I mean, I loved it. I'm, I'm so happy that Southwest, you know, hired me way back in 93. It was super exciting, but I'll tell you the first time I strapped on a flight suit and a military jet. Now that was, that was where was, the excitement was. What were you flying? F-16s? No, I was, I was an A-10 mechanic in Myrtle Beach, and then uh, at Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix. And then when I was a pilot, I was a T-38 instructor pilot. Oh, wow. Yeah, the T-38 Talon, what a fantastic jet. For Beautiful. For your listeners that maybe don't understand what a T-38 is, one, you can Google it. But two, if you remember the movie Top Gun, <laughs> the Russian airplane is it's kind of depicted like an, a fighter but that's more it's kind of like that airplane an f5 a t38 and that's what i was an instructor on i love that yeah and then i got out and joined the phoenix air national guard flying the kc-135s while i was at southwest so yeah you asked the exhilaration of being a commercial pilot it was just a normal progression after i was a military pilot but i see when i upgraded to captain now that's all of a sudden Okay, now you're you're the buck stops with you. <laughs> you are the top gun now. You yeah. literally are the top gun when you get to sit left seat. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say that, you know, as as a private pilot, like I take a lot of pride in being able to sit in the left seat. And so when I go flying with my buddies who are also pilots and we go to the plane, I always walk to the left side. And they're like, Kelly, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you think? I am PIC, pilot command. Okay. <laughs> That's the way to do it. <sighs> So let's talk about your diagnosis for type 1 diabetes. When you received that diagnosis, how did you feel? Oh, gosh. Okay. So that story was, again, I I got diabetes a month after I turned 50 years old. A month before that, I took my annual physical. And of course, the physical, they take blood work and they take, you know, sugar samples and and I had nothing. I had no indication. And all of a sudden, a month later, practically dead. My wife found me that next morning. I, you know, I, it took about three or four days to me just deteriorating and getting sick. Mm. A normal person with sugar levels are anywhere in the 90s to low hundreds, right? She found me and I, they rushed me to the 
doctor and my sugar levels were 890. Wow. Yeah, the doctors are like, you pretty much start deteriorating your body and everything at around the 700s. So I was way past that. Um, and so about two and a half days later, I woke up, you know, I was obviously rushed to the hospital. They put me on insulin uh, drip to bring my numbers slowly down. You don't want to bring them down so fast because that's dangerous too. So it took a couple of days to bring me back to normal. But then, you know, the, finally the doctor comes in on the, that morning and he's describing type 1 diabetes. Okay, this is what you're going to have to do the rest of your life. You're going to need insulin. And I just, excuse me, no, I can't do that because I can't be a pilot. Uh. And his, you know, rationale was, well, I don't care about your career. I care about your life. Right. And if you don't do this, you will die. So what do you want? You want to be a dead pilot or you want to be a live person? You know, <laughs> easy choice there. And then it didn't really hit me for a quick second. I was just like, I, I can't, I lost my job. I just lost my job. Mm. And then my wife came in and she saw that on my face and, and we both just, you know, we just broke down and started crying going, because you know, when you get that flying bug, yeah, it's it's hard to let it go. Absolutely, pilots love to fly. Yes, yes. I literally, I have chills as you're talking because I can only imagine how you felt in that moment. Because, like I say, it it takes a lot of work to get in an aircraft and take off and keep a piece of metal in a way in the air. Like there's a lot that goes into it. You're not just a pilot. You're the doctor on board. You're a mechanic. You're a weatherman. There's so many things that it entails to become a pilot and to have that potentially stripped away from you in an instant is, I mean, there's no other way to say it, but heartbreaking. Yeah. And especially that's something that you've planned for your, your whole life. You finally made it, you got there and all of a sudden this is just taken away. Mm -hmm. So it took a good year to, or two to get my health back because you know type 1 diabetes is like you just said it's very rare and the there's not a lot of information out there on how every diabetic is different the only thing they have in common is you have to take insulin other than that every diabetic reacts differently to everything you know i can't mm -hmm. eat a banana because it's too much sugar but another diabetic may be able to or i can't eat grapes but someone else you know so you have to learn how to manage that. Right. And so I could understand why the, the feds took my license away from it. But once I learned it, once I was able to prove that I could manage it, we found that there was no reason why I shouldn't be able to go back to work. Right. Right. So, so for those who don't know, symptoms also include increased thirst, uh, frequent urination, hunger, fatigue, and blurred vision. Yeah. So, why do you think that the rule of type 1 diabetics being barred from flying was put into place? Is it because of these symptoms that I just... Yes. The, the little bit of a history of diabetes, of course, it's been around, you know, since humans have been around. We just never figured it out. But in, in I think it was 1914, on November 14th, that's why that's Diabetic Day, a Canadian chemist, doctor, found insulin. And that was invented back then. It was a life-changing event for everybody because now diabetics just didn't die. You could live. 
but so look at the mentality all the way up to the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even into the 2000s. The FAA just didn't, how do you say, they didn't trust it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they just were like, no, we're not going to do that. I imagine it was a legal thing that the lawyers for the government were like, we're not going to deal with this because what if a guy passes out? Yeah. And kills people. We're just not going to deal with it. But it has come a long way since then. We now have continuous glucose monitors we never had before. So I've had one for about, you know, well, the entire time, nine years. I think they're maybe 15, 20 years that has was been invented. They continually check your sugar levels. So there's no excuse anymore that I will get low and pass out or get too high and pass out because I now know what my sugar levels are at any given moment. I just have to pick my phone up. It's it's Bluetooth connected to my phone. I wear a device and then I can see what my sugar levels are at any moment. So that has proved to the FAA that yeah, and pilots, you you well know we're we're so checklist oriented. We're a, we're we're, yeah. we're type one people to an extent. We, you know, when we you probably do the same thing. You get in your car and you check the mirrors. You check. Yes. People go, why are you do that? It's always set at the same. Well, because that's my checklist mentality. <laughs> that's what we do in the airplane. Oh my! I'm laughing right now because I'm like amongst my close friends, obviously like the only pilot, right? And so it's nice to hear someone else who does the same things and we don't look at each other as if we're crazy. It's just a natural thing that we do and and it makes sense to us. Yeah. And believe me, you'll get to your destination much safer with us at the at the, at the helm of the car. Exactly. Believe me. Oh, that's so funny. My cheeks are hurting from smiling so bad. I'm like, yes, I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're a weird bunch, aren't we? Yeah, we're very special in the in the best way. Yeah. So, what would you say it's like living with diabetes as a whole? You know, it, I hate to say, you know, after nine and a half years, I'm used to it because you just never get used to it. But mm-hmm. you, you just, well, this is what God gave me, and I have to. I'm living with it now, and I'm adjusting. You know, it's not easy because you have to learn as a diabetic to plan your meals. You know, everybody just, hey, I'm hungry. I'm going to go to McDonald's and grab a burger and fries and a a boom and um, go on with your day. Diabetics can't do that. We we have to plan our meals because we have to plan to take the insulin prior to eating. And that's something that I had to learn. You know, if, if the liquid insulin, once you inject it in your body, it it, it takes a few to get through your bloodstream to start filtering out the sugars. It's about maybe anywhere from 20 minutes to a half an hour before it even starts to react. Mm. And, and it lasts up to four hours in your system. It takes four hours for it to go away. But look at food. You eat food and within what, five minutes, it's already passing through your stomach and processing. So now your sugar levels are spiking. Yeah. Because food reacts immediately, but insulin doesn't. So you have to kind of plan it. That's that's what you have to learn as a diabetic, to plan mm. your meals and then plan your insulin injections before you even go to eat. And this is the hard part is the packaging in, in food. If you look at the total carb, 
and you say, oh, a slice of bread is, or two slices of bread, if you're going to have a ham and cheese sandwich, let's just say, is 30 units or 20 units or, or 20 carbs. So you take whatever your ratio is for that. And you, and let's just say now you're, and so that's, if that, if you're going to eat that alone, boom, that's pretty easy. But now let's just say you're at a restaurant. Well, you don't know exactly how it's prepared. You don't know exactly the carb content. You don't exactly know the portions. So you kind of have to guess. Hmm. And that's the really hard part is, you know, and then you know, I'll, I'll give you a, a, an example. One time I was at a restaurant and we ordered it was breakfast, so we ordered, you know, typical, the American breakfast, eggs, toast, bacon. So I took enough for that. And all of a sudden, about 45 minutes later, where's the meal? Well, the waitress said, we're having a trouble with the cook. The oven broke down or something. Oh, boy. Well, I took insulin for that. And an hour later my insulin is kicking in. Oh, no. And I didn't have food yet. So my numbers start to really drop. Your heart rate goes up. You're, you, I can feel it. Oh, my. I'm shaking, and my wife saw it. And it's like, we need food now. So she ran up to the waitress and said, I need the biggest glass of orange juice you can get. It has a lot of sugar in it. So could you imagine? So now that gets you a little skittish to go, well, I don't want to take insulin prior to my food coming because what if it doesn't come in time what if it you know the portions are so huge and i didn't take an it, that's the hard part about being a diabetic mm -hmm. it's it's so interesting that you say this because i i learned so much while speaking and interviewing um, people on this show because i if my meal doesn't come within a decent time, I'm just annoyed, period, because I just want my food, right? But it's not a life or death thing. It's not a health situation. It's just frustration, right? I just find like sometimes we're in such little bubbles, but me not getting my food in a decent amount of time is just me being annoyed that it's not here. You not getting your food in a decent amount of time can land you in the hospital. Yes. Oh, my. And how does this impact your travel plans? I mean, you are a commercial airline pilot. So now I have to look at, well, first of all, when I was out medical for those nine years, I taught at the schoolhouse so I could, you know, keep my Current. brain going. And, mm -hmm. and so I would have to travel to Dallas and because that's where our training center was. And I would always have a little bottle of orange juice or I have all my needles and my insulin and everything and going through TSA. If I wanted to carry orange juice, well, I'm going to get passed over by TSA. They're going to go, you have a liquid, but I, but I tell them I'm a type 1 diabetic, so they now authorize me to get through, but they, I'm always pulled over and have to do that little uh -huh. you know, test you know, for residue, which is fine. You just get used to it, but it's again, it's something else. And now that I'm a commercial pilot, we have known crew member, and I can, I can bypass most, you know, most of the time. They allow me to bring liquids on because I'm in uniform and, you know, we're not subject to that. But, yeah, it's it's just a whole different way of traveling. Mm -hmm. You know, a normal diabetic has to declare that in order to bring orange juice. Or if they wait past security and buy one at the airport, have you ever seen the prices of those orange juice, those little orange juice? Yeah, seven ninety nine. Yeah, oh, my God. That's an entire bottle at 
at the grocery store. Yeah. So now you're looking at a financial impact. It's something you just have to deal with, I guess. Yeah. Have you ever had an experience traveling where your blood sugar was so low or there have been any other health squares while traveling? No, thank God. I'm, again, we're pilots. We're checklist oriented. I'm going to prevent that from happening way beforehand. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to say that my numbers have not gotten high or low while I'm flying. Yes, they have, but I'm prepared. I have the orange juice with me or I have the insulin with me. Uh, and that's another thing is as a diabetic, you learn you can't put that insulin in the overhead bin. Mm -hmm. You have to have a small bag or a pouch that will fit under the seat because you need that insulin mm -hmm. readily available. You know, the seatbelt sign's on or, or you're sitting in the chair during takeoff. You're not allowed to get up, all that stuff. So you better have that ready. Absolutely. Do you have... Like, that's my thing telling me, I'm, you know, if I'm not low, my numbers are... That's what that alarm... I, see, I thought that that was just an alarm to say something else, but that's your alarm. My thing is telling me, hey, uh, my numbers are... You know, I, I could probably use a little bit of food or something. That's what it, it's not low enough where I'm passing out. Put it that way. I want to say, if you need to stop and do anything right now, please do so. No worries. I might get up and do something, but you can keep talking. Yeah, sure. No worries. I'm like, no, not on my behalf. Please don't stop. <laughs> Take care of yourself. That's for sure. Okay, I'm good. Awesome. Do you have any tips for travel companions who happen to be traveling with someone who has diabetes? Again, I've taught my wife to be a, a somewhat co-pilot because she, she runs a checklist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before we leave the house, you have your insulin, you have your orange juice, you have this, that, that. So that would be my tip as a companion. Take care of your diabetic person. They know, but a lot of times, you know, everybody gets in a rush. Just back up your diabetic. And, you know, have something in your purse or your pocket to back up the diabetic because everybody forgets. Everybody is busy and we tend to mess things up. So if you help them out with that, you know, you're going to be the lifesaver of the day. Oh, absolutely. So you really went through a lot to make sure that you could still become a commercial pilot after being diagnosed. What was the response from the diabetic community when it was announced that you'd be the first pilot with type one diabetes to fly commercially? Oh, wow. Everybody is just really happy and supportive. So we went through the process with congressional senators helping us out. The American Diabetes Association, we have the lead attorney took this upon herself too to help out. So we had a, filed a couple lawsuits and we put pressure on the FAA and they, they finally succumbed <laughs> to the pressure, I guess. Mm -hmm. And in December last year, they announced that they are going to allow it. And so a bunch of us put in all of the paperwork there. There was a whole big checklist that we had to do and go see the cardiologist. We had to go see our endocrinologist. We had to go see ophthalmologist. There's a, a ream of paper about an inch thick I had to send in. And they uh, approved it. And I just happened to be the one that that got through first. Wow. But it was super exciting when we got it. I got and. When I got into the when I got in the airplane and everything and took off, my the check airman that was giving me my check was like, "The power's pushing up and the first diabetic." <laughs> so it was fun. We had a we had a really good time. 
That's funny. And for those of you who don't know, Chet Garman is the person who whose presence will instill the fear of God in you. <laughs> no, they, they're there to make sure that you know what you're doing, that you're current in the aircraft and able to uh, take passengers as well as yourself. And yeah, so they sign you off that you're sign you off. Exactly. As a pilot, you've been to so many places. Is there anywhere you haven't been that's on your travel bucket list? You know, like you said, yeah, I've been in the military. I've been to a lot, a lot of countries. I've never been to Russia. I've been to Kazakhstan. I don't know. You know, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of places I'd like to go back to. New Zealand being one of them. That's an amazing place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never been to Australia. So that's probably on my bucket list. Let's just say that. Oh, yeah. I love Australia. Uh, and if you have the opportunity, go all the way to Broome, Australia, which is, interestingly enough, a place that a lot of Australians never make it to. So, yeah, okay. yeah if you're going to go all the way down, you might as well go yonder and go to Broome, which is Western Australia. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, Bob, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I know that there'll be a lot of people who are inspired about the fact that you have fought so hard to not only, you know, keep and maintain a career that you love, but also to not let diabetes get in the way of your ability to live life and to see the world. So thank you. And that's the key. You you can't let it get you down. I mean, you got to move forward. And that's what we do, right? We put one foot in front of the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much to Bob Hallecky for sharing his adventures with us. I especially love this from one pilot to another. That's all for this episode of Let's Go Together, a podcast by Travel and Leisure. I'm your host, Kelly Edwards. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Jamila Zara-Williams, Lena Beck-Sillison, and Susie Armitage. And thank you to our digital executive editor, Deanne Kazurski at Travel and Leisure. This show was recorded in Los Angeles, edited in New York City, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more at travelandleisure.com slash podcast. You can find Travel and Leisure on Instagram at Travel and Leisure, on Twitter at Travel Leisure, on TikTok at Travel and Leisure Mag, and you can find me, your host, Kelly, at Kelly Set Go. And that's Kelly with three E's.